This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Monsignor Barry Brinkman breaks down the Our Father. What does it mean to call God Our Father? How is the Our Father like a diamond? Do we really have to forgive in order to be forgiven? Well, let's find out. Monsignor Barry Brinkman is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Ken Billinger. We have Monsignor Barry is on the phone, so we're going to welcome in uh, Father Barry Brinkman, who was ordained to the priesthood in May of 1991. He has served in numerous parishes in counties of uh, Saline, Cloud, Republic, and Ellis. He's earned a degree in canon law in 1999, was named vice chancellor of the diocese the same year. Later, he served as chancellor for 13 years, served on the marriage tribunal for 20, and became the uh, judicial vicar in the diocese in 2012. Elected and served as diocesan administrator for 14 months between the terms of Bishop Paul Coakley and Bishop Edward Weisenberger. In 2013, he was conferred the honor of Monsignor by Pope Benedict XVI, and Monsignor Brinkman currently assists parishes in Mitchell and Osborne counties, as well as serving as chaplain for the Nazareth Mother House in Concordia. He also conducts parish renewal days and parish missions within the diocese, and we welcome in Father Barry Brinkman. Father Barry, how are you this afternoon? Doing good, doing good. Well, great to hear from you. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to talk and break down the Our Father, something we say at the Mass every time we go to Mass, something we say when we pray, especially when we're praying the Rosary. But we're going to break it down a little more. Why is the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer one of the most preeminent prayers of Christianity and in the Catholic Church, and why is it so attractive and powerful? Well, obviously, it's a prayer given directly by uh, Christ himself, so that obviously makes it supreme over all the other prayers. Not that the other prayers are bad or or not fruitful, but these are the words of Jesus himself, the Word of God, the Savior, is actually teaching us through these words, through this prayer that he shares with us. So for that reason, the Our Father, you know, uh, takes uh, primacy over the other prayers, and and whether you're Catholic or Christian or Protestant throughout the cross-denominational lines, because it is directly from sacred scripture, so that makes it extra special. And also, it's it's attractive, powerful prayer because of the simplicity. You know, it's it's very simple prayer. As Catholic children, you know, we learned it. If you grew up Catholic, it's one of the first prayers we learned. So it's very simple. It's very direct. It's very understandable. It's very portable in the sense that you don't need a book to pray it. You know, once you have it to memory, you carry it with you wherever you go. And it's universal, like I said, um, in all languages and across Christian denominations and and churches. So that makes it especially powerful and and meaningful. I kind of likened it to a diamond. You know, diamonds are attractive because they have all those facets you know, and the light catches the various facets. It, it directs the light in different ways. You you see the different angles and and dimensions of the diamond, which makes it beautiful. And and the Our Father is the same way. It's kind of like a diamond. If we if we really meditate on it and and pray it, not simply recite it or rattle through it like like uh, sometimes we all be all be guilty of, but truly see as a facet, allow the various sides of it, the various dimensions of it, to reflect the light of God into our lives. 
because it is a prayer from sacred scripture. Sacred scripture is alive and dynamic, and God continues to speak to us, continues to feed us, and to love us through sacred scripture. So this, if we truly pray the Our Father, meditate on it, reflect on it, it's it's a reflection of sacred scripture too. Where we're actually reflecting on on God's word. So for all those reasons, it's it's very attractive. And you know, down through the history of our church, long history of our church, various saints have heralded the Our Father. I, I don't know about you, but I kind of sometimes take the prayer for granted. <laughs> I learned it from memory when I was seven years old. But, you know, like St. Augustine once said that, that he, he quoted from 4th century, St. Augustine wrote, You may look through all the prayers in the scriptures, but you will not find anything that is not contained in the Lord's Prayer. So for St. Augustine, this prayer was holistic. It, 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 it contains everything that we are. It contains an attitude, a disposition we're to have before God. It contains our needs, our petitions, and communicates trust. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas put it differently in the 13th century. He said that the Lord's, he considered the Lord's Prayer the perfect prayer. Uh, St. Uh, Aquinas, which says a lot. He says, this is the most perfect prayer. He, he writes, in it we ask not only for the things we can rightly desire, but also in the sequence that they should be desired. So this prayer puts thing, things that should be first are put first in the prayer. Things that are put second and third and fourth are in their their proper order. So, and I could quote other saints, Saint, you know, Saint Cyprian and Saint Cyril and Saint John Chrysostom, all wrote commentaries, reflections on this prayer because it was so meaningful for them and for the church, for the whole community. We're talking with Father Barry Brinkman about uh, the, the Our Father and why breaking it down is so important. It, obviously, we meditated on it, Father, but. And of course, we want to want to really not only just say it and when we pray it, but really think about the words that we say. So, and we're not sure if it was Saint Teresa of Avila or Saint uh, uh, the Little Flower, Saint Teresa the Little Flower, who said that while meditating on the Our Father, she couldn't get past <laughs> the hour, uh, right. which is amazing. What what is uh, what is meant by the words hour and then Father? And then the Father. Well, one of the challenging things about this prayer for us is we're over-familiar with it, right? So because it's, we're so familiar with it, we're tempted to think there's, there's no new revelation, you know. There's nothing fresh in it for us, uh, nothing meaningful for our lives today that's just a kind of ancient prayer that Jesus passed on to us. So we have to get over that prejudice. And secondly, we're always, requ- we're always questing, always looking for something new and novel, you know, that's our natural human tendency, and this prayer may seem a little old and antiquated. But if we break it apart, like you're suggesting, like the saints say, take it word by word or phrase by phrase, all of a sudden, you know, it can take on fresh and, and new meaning, and and God continue to speak to us in, in, in new, insightful ways, because we're always changing, you know, you and I. We're not the same person we... Um, are today than we were yesterday, or last week, or last year. So we're always changing, which means God is always speaking to us where we're at and whatever stage or experience or event in our life, speaking to us in a new way. And this prayer can 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 unlock that unlock that for us. I would just make make a side note before we venture into that ire and and Father and and some of the phrases is, you know, there's actually two versions of the Our Father in Sacred Scripture. Uh, a lot of people know this, some people don't. There's Matthew's Gospel and Matthew's, Matthew's Version, and that's the one we use at Mass and in the sacraments. That's the one we memorize. It has 50 words and seven petitions. 
So that's in, in Matthew's Gospel. There's also a version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel, and it's much shorter. It's only 35 words and five petitions, and um, it's kind of abbreviated somewhat when it's translated into Greek. And so uh, the Church, the Christian tradition over 2,000 years, has been prejudicial towards Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer because it's fuller, it's richer, it's more all-encompassing. doesn't mean Luke's version is bad or, or wrong. It's just the Gospel of Matthew's version is, is a fuller, perhaps fuller explanation, expression of what Jesus is, is, is teaching us. So if we, if we go into that structure, you know, the Our Father who art in heaven, there's that opening address to God, that invocation, invoking God, and, and putting God first, you know. So by beginning in that way, Jesus is, is teaching us kind of a, one of the fundamental aspects of prayer that we first focus on God. I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes when I enter prayer, I just want to focus on my needs right away, <laughs> or my wants, or, right. or problems, or whatever. And, uh, and sometimes I never end up focusing simply on who God is, you know. So the prayer begins by focusing on God as our Father who art in heaven, and then it goes into petitions, three petitions concerning God, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, all these deal with God. And then the final petitions uh, deal with us, um, our needs, um, our concerns, all of that. So, um, if we venture into the R, you're right. Jesus didn't teach us to pray, "My Father," or, or but rather that God is the uh, Father of all peoples. That uh, we're not uh, orphan. We're not an orphan child. We belong to a family. So the R com- communicates that, implies a communion of all of humanity. You know, praying with Jesus. This is not only a prayer Jesus prays, teaches us to pray, but we pray in it in concert, in communion with Christ, in concert with the Word made incarnate. So when we pray this prayer, we're actually joining our hearts to the heart of Christ. And where is the heart of Christ? That's the love of, of all people. So, so it implies a communion of believers, but also a communion of sons and daughters of God, since God is the origin of all, all of the human family, uh, humanity. So we leave individualism, individualism behind at the very beginning of this prayer our individual self, that we belong to a bigger whole, a bigger community. And this is repeated at the end of the prayer. The petitions, if we jump to the end, exclude no one. So uh, it's plural when we're asking for all these things in the prayer. So it's reinforcing what we prayed at the very beginning. The ire is reinforced at the end um, as we're praying for the needs, just not my needs, but the needs of, uh, and the needs of my family, but the needs of the whole community and the whole human race. So um, our catechism um, uh, breaks down the Our Father uh, line by line. A lot of people may not know everything that's in the catechism, but there's a whole section in our Catholic catechism on the Our Father. And it takes it line by line and sometimes word by word. And not only does it cross-reference it to Scripture, how other places in Scripture help explain what Jesus is sharing with us in this prayer, but also uh, cross-references saints who did various reflections and commentaries on it. So someone who's really interested in the Our Father beyond this, this interview, this reflection, pick up the catechism, and it's easy to find the section on the Our Father, and it's very rich, very uh, solid. It can be very informative if you want to simply learn more about the Our Father. So that's just... Uh, 
resource that's available, and all this is available on the Internet, too. The Catholic Catechism 3 on the Internet, so you can look all this up on the Internet as well. But the Catechism goes through it by line. I'm not going to read the various paragraphs and parts of the Catechism to you, but, but um, know that what I'm telling you is, is uh, half of us gleaned from you know, the teachings of our Church from the Catechism. So. And Pope Francis also wrote a, a book on the Our Father. A lot of people don't realize that. It's a very short book, a Spiritual Reflection, and uh, it's entitled um, Our Father by Pope Francis, Reflections on the Lord's Prayer. So it's another resource people can pick up and, and go through. And he also tells little stories in there about his childhood and his upbringing how, and relating Our Father to his own personal experience, too. So that's the R part. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about the next segment, Who Art in Heaven? I'm going to let you right. take off on that. Well, I might mention the Father part, too. So, you know, this, this prayer is so rich. I, I actually offer three sessions on this <laughs> So in a parish mission. So we're kind of collapsing all that down into 45 minutes or 50 minutes. But just the Father, too, can be a real obstacle for people. Um, given the nature of today's society and, and families, the the title father, the connotations people have of father, whether they had a good father or bad father growing up, you know that brings in a lot of baggage, a lot of good or or bad memories. You know the use of the title father is consistent for God in the Old Testament, just an FYI. So it's nothing, not novel for Jesus to use this title. Uh, referring to God as Father, we find it in the Psalms and and the prophets in the Old Testament. And Jesus consistently uses the title Father, addressing God. For example, in the Agony and Garden, you know, Father, let this cup pass from me, or on the cross, Father, forgive them, or Father, into your hands I come in my spirit. So Jesus consistently uses his title as well. But the problem is twofold. Uh, a person's experience of Father and the inclu- inclusivity or exclusivity of, of the title, right? Uh, being a masculine title for God. So uh, the uh, some people, you know, society today, there's either, and uh, Pope Francis mentions this in his book, Reflecting on the Our Father, how that title can be a barrier for people, because he notes two things. There's either the absence of fathers in the home, which is becoming more common, single-parent families and, and all of that. Um, you know, the stats in the United States, almost a, a third of U.S. children have no father in the home. So there's an aching absence of Father. They don't have a reference point. A person might not have a reference point for calling God Father because they never had a real Father. And also abuse, abusive presence uh, of fathers, abusive fathers. So, And that can bring in bad connotations of this title. So what Pope Francis does as well as our catechism does, it challenges us to go beyond our earthly experiences and memories of fatherhood to see God as the ideal Father, what God is like and unlike. God is like the ideal Father, the the guide, the protector, the the provider, unlike sometimes our earthly experiences of Father, you know. Um, So a person has to sort that out kind of mentally and within their heart to imagine God as the ideal Father. If you want an ideal Father, um, you know, God is foremost that that example, that that model. So much more more could be said out on that. And admittedly, God is also mother, referred to mother in the sacred scriptures as well, um, in numerous places and by numerous saints. But that's a whole other <laughs> discussion about that. So, sure. but um, so that's the t- that's the R and the Father. So that alone 
is fodder for a lot of reflection. So, who art in heaven? Our catechism says uh, that phrase points out several dimensions or aspects of God that are obviously points to God's majesty. That means it doesn't mean God is far away. The biblical expression doesn't mean a place, but a way of being. So God is always present. So God transcends our concept of him. When we say who art in heaven, we're not saying he's far, far away. We're saying his ways and his wisdom and his love supersedes, goes beyond our comprehension. Who art in heaven, it's beyond us. And also, our catechism points out, when we say who art in heaven, it points to how God's dwelling place is in the heart of the believer. So St. Cyril makes the comment that we bear the image of God, and when we welcome the Holy Spirit within us, then something of God's kingdom dwells within us. Something of God is within us. So we make our dwell, our, ourselves a dwelling place for God. So St. Augustine wrote, it is rightly understood to mean that God is in the heart of the just as his holy temple. So St. Paul says we're living temples of God. So God is in heaven, the heaven of our hearts, you could say when the Holy Spirit dwells at, when we truly see ourselves and live ourselves as living temples of the Holy Spirit, God dwells within his heaven, uh, within the human heart that's devoted to him. And finally, it points to our true home, the Catechism says, who art in heaven, allows us to, to know that this is a journey that we're on. We're sojourners, we're pilgrims, and um, our ultimate destination is that heavenly, that heavenly kingdom. So that's the um, who art in heaven part. And let's move on to the next line, which is, Hallowed be thy name. Okay. The Hallowed be thy name recognizes God's holiness, sacredness of God, how God is to be uh, revered. To make something holy means to separate it, to make it different. So, for example, we talk about a holy church, which means that building is set apart for worship and for prayer, for the celebration of sacraments. If we talk about a holy day, that means that day is set apart from the ordinary days. Uh, holy objects treated differently, used differently than ordinary objects. So when we talk about the meaning of God, the holiness of God's name, we're actually praying, help us, O Lord, to give you that special revered place that, that you deserve and that you demand as well. So it reveals something of God's... Um, character, God's um, uh, nature. Uh, God is other. other. God is just not another human being or uh, another entity, but, but God is um, completely different from ourselves, but yet intimate uh, to us. So, so the question could be, the practical question, reflection question could be, you know, how do we make God's name holy? How do we reflect that holiness of our lives, but also the holiness of God's presence and, and God's name through our words or actions and, and through our lifestyle. So um, this this reverencing of God's name, you know, um, down through the centuries, various saints have commented that if we don't revere God's name, it's like a house of cards, that if you take that card away, not giving God the due reverence or honor or glory that is due God, then everything else begins to deteriorate. So namely, we lose our reverence for each other. For our relationships. You can probably see that in the world, right? As the world becomes more secular, uh, there's less reverence for the dignity of human life. You know, that's no accident. One, fo- one follows the other. Our catechism also uh, marches through these as well, these, these repercussions of not 
keeping holy God's name. We, uh, we lose a, a, a reverence for creation, our catechism says, how we are stewards of creation when we lose, lose reverence for God and God's holy name. We lose a sense of our morality, how we are to live with one another, um, how we are to, uh, uh, we lose our sense of prayer. We lose the foundation for humility because we can make ourselves gods, you know, and kind of worship and revere ourselves. So, you know, we might not think that's a, that's just kind of a throwaway line in the, in the Our Father, but a lot of things depend on hallowed be thy name, you know, if we do or don't do that. A lot of repercussions, a lot of consequences. We're uh, now we're going to continue to move on. Of course, Father Barry Brinkman breaking down the Our Father, a very rich prayer, and and I love this because simply because we we do say this uh, often. Uh, oftentimes, when we say it at Mass, we just simply pray it, but not really think about those words. Let's talk about uh, Thy Kingdom Come. Okay, uh, Thy Kingdom Come uh, actually, as our Catechism points out, has. Um, three different meanings, I mean, three different applications all at once. So, thy kingdom come points to a future reality, you know, the fullness of, of Christ's reign and glory, that his second coming, right? So, thy kingdom comes, so we look forward to that coming of the kingdom. But the kingdom has already come in and through Jesus. He was born, he became incarnate, he walked on the earth. So, God's kingdom has come to earth, God's presence. If you don't like the word kingdom, you can think of God's reign or God's presence, so, not that those words are exactly interchangeable, but so when you think of kingdom, don't think of government or an empire, but think of a, a reign, a, a presence. So, God's fullness of God's presence, glory will be revealed in the future. God's presence has already come in the past and through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the kingdom is present now, as Jesus says. He tells his apostles, the kingdom is in your midst. So, um, when we're living out our faith, uh, we experience a taste, uh, an experience of the kingdom, a kingdom of justice, of peace, of, of charity, of generosity, of forgiveness. So we experience those virtues that we're, we're experiencing a hint, a taste, not the fullness, not the perfection of God's kingdom, God's power at work in us and, and through us. So it's past, present, and future when we talk about God's kingdom. So we're praying for that kingdom and uh, through this prayer in, in those three ways. It's already here, but yet not yet, and it's fullness and protection, and, uh, and, uh, and our catechism points that out, too, in several paragraphs. And Jesus spoke about the kingdom, too. You know, it's not something passive. He uses various parables in Matthew's Gospel, where the Lord's Prayer is also found. He talks about how the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That's a, it's a real small thing that grows in something very big and fruitful. He talks about God's kingdom is a treasure in a field that we have to acquire and dig up. Talk about God's kingdom is like a great pearl, a great price that we have to search for. So, in other words, it's not passive. When we're praying for God's kingdom, it's something that we have to be involved in. We have to be invested in. We have to be living it out now, here and now, uh, to anticipate its its fullness. You know, in us and and in in the future. So, so that's what we refer to as God's kingdom. So it's not simply a remote reality, or it's not something in the past, but it's also present experience we can have. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio computer, smartphone app, or on Amazon Echo, please know. We'll be right back with more from Monsignor Barry Brinkman.
We're back on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Breaking down the Our Father with Monsignor Barry Brinkman. Ken Billinger conducts the interview. We're talking with Monsignor Barry Brinkman on uh, Breaking Down the Our Father. You've talked about thy kingdom come. Let's uh, touch on thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right. I think this phrase, this petition, thy will be done, and the one, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, I think those are the two most difficult and courageous <laughs> petitions in the whole Lord's Prayer for really think about them and, and reflect on them. So, thy will be done. So, you know, C.S. Lewis once wrote, C.S. Lewis was a famous Christian author, uh, friends with many Catholic uh, authors and, and novelists during his time period. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote, there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and to those whom God says, all right, then have it your way. <laughs> so, and we usually know how it turns out when we have it our way, right? Not, not a good way. God gives us freedom, though, to choose. So, so thy will be done. So it's, it's not, a, as St. Teresa of Calcutta once said, it's not a question of success or failure, but, but whether we're simply following the will of God, really seeking to do it. And sometimes it takes some real personal honesty and probing to say, am I actually wanting to do God's will? Am I actually, am I actually wanting to discern God's will? Or have I already made up my mind? You know, or am I really, you know, just going with my own preferences, even though I'm saying, God, I want to know your will. I want your will to be done. So we have kind of do some personal uh, inventory and assessment to see if we're really uh, wanting to do God's will. And and a lot of people don't know how to discern God's will. So I also have sessions on discerning God's will. The Ignatian, St. Ignatius had a had an 11-step process for discerning God's will. It's not that complicated, but it involves time and investment and prayer. But but discerning God's will doesn't come easily sometimes. So um, so when we pray in this, we're praying for an openness, for for freedom, that we might be free from our own you know, personal self-interest or fears or prejudices or selfishness, that we might truly be open to receiving, knowing, following, doing God's will. And it's a dang- this is dangerous because, as Christian theologians and saints down through the ages would say, doing God's will can be, be uncomfortable, even painful, because when we do God's will, sometimes it's submitting to God's will doesn't bring full understanding. You know, we know this is the way God is asking us to go, but we don't have a full understanding what's around the horizon or what's around the corner, and that can cause discomfort and, and, and pain. And secondly, it can be a lonely experience doing God's will. You know, think of Jesus in the garden. You know, it was a very personal, intimate struggle to say, to do God's will. Thy will be done, you know. And uh, so it's a very personal decision, it's very intimate, and it demands courage and trust from us. So, you know, as one theologian said, everyone has their own moment in the garden when we pray, please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. So all of us have those, if we're living our faith, we'll have those garden, our own agony in the garden, you could say, when we're praying, uh, thy will be done. And so sometimes it's easier to follow God's will in certain circumstances, other times it's very difficult. So... And again, St. Ignatius of Loyola in the 16th century, founder of the Jesuits, proposed an 11-step process or framework for 
discerning God's will and actually doing it. And it can be pretty insightful. It's also involved, you know, you can easily get access to that on the Internet, his insights. Father Barry Brinkman is breaking down the Our Father. We've talked about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next line, give us this day our daily bread. And sometimes so that, I think there's a maybe a misunderstanding about this one, but I'll let you right. share. Well, these, these are the last four petitions. So the, you know, we started with the um, recognition of who God is um, how be, and the holiness of God. And then we uh, the other phrases were more theological, you know, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And now the last four petitions address our daily needs. Notice the action verbs in it. Give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. So those are the last four petitions. So now we're getting down the nitty-gritty of our ordinary life, our our practical concerns and needs and, and even fears. So one of those fears is daily bread. And um, just to put this in historical context, in Matthew's Gospel, you know, when, when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, most of the people Jesus taught, and many of those who were, most of those who were following him, were living day by day, hand to mouth. Uh, they weren't wealthy people. They, they lived on their daily bread. And we would call them today food insecure. And one-third of the people in the world today are food insecure. That is, they don't know tomorrow where their next meal might come, which is pretty amazing, about 30% of the world. So, so when Jesus talked about daily bread, it, it hit them on several different levels. It hit them on their physical level, their physical needs, their poverty. But obviously he meant uh, a broader or deeper meaning of, of daily bread as well. Our catechism go, goes into that as well. But before we get into that more expansive notion of daily bread, notice it says our daily bread. Again, it reconnects it to the very beginning when we pray our Father. It's a communal prayer. We're praying our bread, which means we're praying, just, I'm not just praying for my sustenance, my daily needs, but I'm praying for those of everyone, you know, all of humanity, especially the poor. Who, who don't have their, their physical daily bread. So we're actually intervening, intercessory prayer on behalf of all the uh, people who may be starving or in the world or food insecure. So, again, it's reinforcing that we're in this together. We're members of a broader family. We're interconnected, interdependent. It's, call, it's really a call, as our catechism says, it's a call to care for one another. So that's another challenge when we pray for our daily bread. And the more expansive meaning of daily bread, it could mean food, obviously, for tables. It could be medicine for the sick. Daily bread could be money to pay the bills. Uh, It could be remedy for troubled persons. It could be employment. Daily bread could be hope. Daily bread of hope for the despairing or companionship for the elderly or the lonely. So daily bread can mean many things. And and we're praying this prayer, we're asking not passively that somehow God drops this daily bread out of the sky, but we are God's people, we are the body of Christ, so through us, God feeds other people. So through our words, through our actions, through our prayers, through our example, we can be daily bread for other people in ways that we may not ever know, but ways that we can consciously and, and intentionally be daily bread for those around us. It doesn't always involve money or may not always involve food, but it involves all those other aspects, too, we can be daily bread for people. We're going to move on to, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I might um, 
back up just a little bit, I forgot to talk about the give us, that verb. We were talking about the daily bread and all the various meanings of that, but, but just the phrase give us um, is um, very meaningful. If you spend some time to simply reflect on that, it, it means give us meaning our dependency on God, that we, we need this given to us, that we're not the source of the many good blessings and gifts that we, we give to us. So by, by praying give us, we're acknowledging everything is ultimately a gift from God, and that relationship to daily bread means God is concerned about the little things of life, the daily things that, that sustain us, uh, just not the big things, but the daily things. So God is intimately caring for our lives, and we pray give us uh, this daily, and it says daily bread. So that is meant to remind us of the manna God supplied the people on a daily basis as they made their way through the desert to the ultimate promised land, and God gave them daily bread except for one day, right, and except for the Sabbath. But, um, and so the people rely daily off of God. And so that Jesus doesn't say give us our bread, but our daily bread. So we have to recognize our daily, uh, daily depends, daily sustenance comes from, comes from God. And then we have the final three petitions, the forgive us, uh, lead us not, and deliver us, and the doxology at the end, the, the, sort of the, the history of that. So I think the most challenging part of this prayer would be this next petition. <laughs> and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. All one line. So we're not supposed to break it up. One is the first part of the line is dependent on the second part of the line. And it's the only petition that Jesus returns to, and he develops an explicit commentary on this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew's Gospel, he adds, after he teaches this prayer, then he says, this is commentary, if you forgive people their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not uh, forgive, then your Father will not forgive you your transgressions. So he felt the need to actually add a commentary or a greater explanation, which gives even more emphasis or importance to this this phrase. So what, what, what does this mean? Does it mean God is tit for tat or God is petty? No, it's that our response to God's mercy is required. Uh, before we, um, before our prayer to be forgiven is heard, that the Catechism uses the words "astonishing" to describe this, and describes this this phrase as daunting. The uh, that the outpouring of God's mercy cannot penetrate our hearts as long as we we uh, have not forgiven those who have trespassed against us. In other words, we have to know our own need for mercy, our own reliance of God's forgiveness to know that, to feel that, to trust in that, to allow that to penetrate our minds and hearts if we're truly going to be able to have the capacity to be open to accepting and trusting in God's forgiveness. So we have to practice mercy, I guess, practice compassion. It's sort of like you lose an agricultural image, you know, ground that's beaten down that's real hard. When it rains, the rain just runs off of it, right? It can't absorb the, the gift of rain. Um, same way with a heart that's hardened, you know, even though uh, God's mercy and grace and forgiveness might be poured down upon it, it's not receptive, it's not not open. And uh, so I use, that's a crude analogy, but that's what sort of the dynamics going on here. And, and, um, and our catechism says this is a daunting, <laughs> daunting and astonishing phrase, that um, a strict requirement, our petition will not be heard unless 
we have mer- first met this strict requirement to be forgiving, to, to show compassion to others. So uh, the Catechism makes a point, this shows the unity of forgiveness, that there's a whole unity. God shared forgiveness with us, we share it with one another. It comes, comes full circle. There's a unity to it all. And then we go to lead us not into temptation. temptation. Right. And um, this was, uh, do you remember this made the headlines of like last year? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone was accusing the Pope of changing the Bible right, or, right. or changing scripture or whatever. And the, um, and what he actually did was he allowed the, he, there was a new Italian translation that came out, a new French translation. So the Italian translation of this is, do not abandon us to temptation. So the English translation, lead us not to temptation, implies that God is leading us, doesn't it? That God is somehow leading us down this right. path of temptation. That's, so the Italian translation is, do not abandon us to temptation. The French translation is, do not let me fall into temptation. So it makes it a little more clear that it's not God tempting us. As James says, God uh, won't tempt us to do evil. And he, God tempts no one in the book of James, says the letter to St. James. So um, God gives us a freedom, um, free will. So, you know, we can easily choose to follow temptation, but that's our choice is not God leading us. So the leading is our own hearts, our own minds leading us in temptation, not God. So it's asking God to protect us, to help uh, deliver us uh, from evil. Uh, since our adversaries smarter than we are, craftier than we are, um, stronger than we are, so we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need God's protection, God's help, deliverance, just not for ourselves, but notice deliver us. So we're not just praying for, I'm not just not praying for myself. I'm praying for my family, for my community, for our society, for the world, that not be you know, uh, be led um, into evil, not led into temptation to to do evil. So it's after actually intercessory on, on behalf of the whole world. We might be freed from all evils. And we go to, but deliver us from evil. So I'll let you take off from there. I think I kind of touched on that earlier. Again, and that's plural. So praying on intercessory prayer on behalf of all people, because it's our. And as we know, Evil is something real in the world. It's uh, it's an entity. It's a power. It's a force. It's all those things. So we have a real enemy out there. And you know, as um, as uh, some saints and theologians down through the ages says that evil just doesn't want to come and bother us or distract us. Evil wants to actually destroy us, totally take us out of the the uh, field of play, so to speak. So we become totally. Um, unable to live the faith um, or worship God or pray or all those things. So evil's nothing to be seen as something that's merely an abstraction or merely a distraction, but it's something real, it's powerful, it's deadly, and it wants to destroy us individually and together. And one way evil represents itself or shows itself is through disunity. And notice our, our world suffers from great disunity. Don't we? So the dividing between Christians, but also within our own church, right? And that's a symptom of, of evil at work, trying to divide us. You know, you know, Jesus' final prayer was for unity, and and that's you know, so he's foreshadowing or foretelling our our current struggles, right, with unity. The embolism at the at you know at mass after we pray the Lord's prayer, if we say Amen, which simply means so be it, 
you know, that that we're praying that all that we have prayed for, we agree with, that we consent to, we give our lives to. And then it's notice at Mass, after the Lord's Prayer, we have an embolism. And the priest says, deliver us, Lord, from every evil and grant us peace in our day. And your mercy keep us free from all anxiety as we wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Where does that come from? You know, we add that before the doxology at Mass. Well, that comes from the very first centuries of the Church. Um, so we just didn't make that up recently or within the last few decades. It's, uh, it goes back, dates back to the first centuries of the Church and the Ori- Oriental Rite and um, Syrian Rite of liturgies and, and everything. So they found it beautiful because it repeats the last few petitions of the Lord's Prayer, reinforces our need to be delivered from evil, um, that peace comes from God, that uh, keep us free from all anxiety. So it's reinforcing that that final petition because that's so important. And then we have the doxology, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, ever, amen. And we pray that at Mass. But typically when we pray that our own, at least as Catholics or the Rosary, we don't, we don't include that doxology. Uh, it's because it wasn't part of the original Lord's Prayer, does that make sense? So, you mm-hmm. know, when Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer, he didn't uh, include that doxology. However, it's included, in, and uh, we recognize it because it's in the Didache. It's a second-century document in the Church attributed to the Twelve Apostles. Didache records how the Church first worshipped and celebrated the sacraments and all of that. So we honor as an ancient tradition, traditional prayer that, that kind of concludes the Lord's Prayer, but when we pray the Rosary and other times we pray the Our Father, we don't, don't include that because it wasn't part of Jesus' own words. It was added uh, later in that those first decades after Jesus' resurrection. A lot of people wonder where that came from. Right. It's, you know, it's very ancient, so we honor it. But it because it wasn't part of Jesus' original prayer, we don't include it when we pray the Rosary and other things like that. It's not bad to include our Protestant brothers and sisters. Always include it, usually. You know, part of their mm-hmm. their Protestant tradition, but it's just not simply part of our Catholic tradition to include that in our personal prayer when we pray to Our Father. All right. Well, that's uh, some great information as we break down the Our Father this afternoon. Uh, anyway, I, you know, I love the breakdown because it is one of those things that, you know, a lot of the things, again, we say it over and over. We say it at the Mass. We say it when we pray the Rosary. We say it a lot of times just in some general uh, prayers, those additional prayers that we say, and we really don't always really think about the words. And, and uh, I just thought it was interesting because, and, and I can't remember, I think it was St. Teresa of Avila, but I may be wrong, but, you know, said I couldn't get past the hour. And I'm thinking what a long prayer that must have been for her. So, uh, Right, but, and a good way to pray this prayer, and we don't have probably time for this, but... Um, and we do have to, a few minutes left, so go ahead. Oh, to do the Benedictine model of prayer, the divine reading in the sense of meditating on the Lord's Prayer using St. Benedict's model of prayer, which which is a slow reflection on sacred scripture. A lot of people, we forget the Lord's Prayer is sacred scripture. It's right out of Matthew's Gospel, you know. So when we're reflecting and meditating on it, we're actually, it's like taking a passage out of the Psalms or other places that we treat just the same. So as many of your listeners will know, the Benedictine model of meditation is very easy. It's called divine reading, sometimes Lexio Divina, and it in, involves reading the text, um, and then uh, until a word or phrase captures your attention, like our, or father, or some other phrase. And uh, a certain word or, or phrase might capture attention at different points in time that you're praying the prayer. So you might pray it Friday, and another word might capture attention than the word that you might 
might capture your attention on Monday. But anyway, you read until a word or phrase captures your attention. You stop there. You reflect on that word or that prayer. You just keep repeating it in your mind until it becomes kind of into, into your heart as well, into your kind of your whole being. You know, let, let's say the, the phrase is, thy kingdom come. You just keep repeating that, and that becomes kind of a mantra, kind of a prayer you're praying, like, thy kingdom come. And then when you become distracted, simply stop and respond when, when inspired with a short prayer petition. So I might pray, God, help your kingdom to come in my mind and heart, or help your kingdom to come in the way I, I'm a friend to others. Or, you know, so we pray a very short prayer, not long, then we rest for a very short moment, and then begin reading again, the prayer again. So it's best to have the, even though we know the Our Father by heart, it's best to have the, the script in front of you, the, the words in front of you, so that, so that you're treating it like sacred scripture. And then you just move on to the next phrase, and you stop at a word or phrase of the Holy Spirit, you know, is drawing you towards. And again, you reflect on it, just repeating that word and phrase reflectively, quietly. And then the time comes when you feel it's time to make a petition, and you just respond to it very simply. Very, uh, uh, Saint Benedict taught prayer should be brief and short. He said, simple and short. And you do, and then you uh, rest for a few seconds, and then you begin. So you go through the prayer. You know, like you said, some saints can't even get through the first few lines using this model. You know, this reflect reflective way of treating the prayer. All right. Well, some great information, uh, Father. Thanks so much for for joining us this afternoon, breaking this down. Uh, we have about a minute left. Any final comments you want to make, or we do we get everything covered? No. Um, you know, some people find prayer a mystery. They think they have to do it just right, or or do fancy models of prayer, methods of prayer. And I like what one author said: the only way you can fail at prayer is not show up. Mm, right. <laughs> you know, as mm. showing up as. <laughs> As, as you know, one committing, uh, you know, showing up is half the half the battle. Sure, half the thing is just being present. You know, there's no way you can fail at prayer. Uh, you can fail if you don't show up, but but uh, but simply showing up and and God knows our hearts and minds and knows our good intentions. And sometimes prayer will be very fruitful, well, very warm, intimate experiences of God. Other times prayer will be very cold and dry. But the point is, you're there. You know, and that's what counts. And God will make the prayer fruitful. Maybe not that moment, but maybe the next day or the next week or the next month. The prayer time with God's never wasted. So time in prayer is never ever wasted. Don't rely off our feelings and emotions or our self evaluation. Just be in prayer and let God work. All right. Well, Father, as always, we enjoy your time with us and glad you took some time out to spend with us again this afternoon to break down this all-important prayer that we uh, sometimes can very much take for granted. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Double-Edged Sword, Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. Let us know what you thought of this show by going to dvmercy.com and click on the Double-Edged Sword icon. The comment button is in the middle of the page. And folks, eternity is not seen, but neither are these airwaves. But if you can support these radio waves and help save souls for eternity, then please go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate, where your donation will be seen and appreciated. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 101.7 KJDM Lindsberg and Salina, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Band, and 88.1 KBDM Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.